Hi, welcome to Comics Unscripted, the podcast from Foreign Press Comics. I'm Kyler Merrill, and today we have uh, Jason Inman, the writer of comics like Jupiter Jet and Science the Elements of Dark Energy. Yes, and now Super Best Friend. Uh, it's on Kickstarter now. Um, how are you doing, Jason? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for I uh, thanks for coming on. I hope I got that title right because after I started, I was like, I don't remember if I got it right. But um, like I have it, I just don't know. If I got oh, it. you did science, okay. science, the elements of dark energy. Yes, elements. Yeah. And you got to put the exclamation mark on it. Mm-hmm. So um, which I didn't do right. So mm-hmm. I apologize. Um, but so I guess I kind of want to start with um, your sorry, again, it's winter storm. So I'm going to be sniffling a lot. Um, we ha- I guess I want to start off with your um, your origin in comics. I want to start off pretty basic and then we can kind of go from there to some other things or start off with your your origin in terms of comics. Let's go with that. Uh, do let me just for clarification do you mean my origin in terms of reading or my origin is in terms of working um, in comics let's let's start with um reading and then um kind of transition from uh kind of start there and then kind of move move along okay uh, um do you have three hours <laughs> Uh, is this no, is a three-hour so podcast. Yeah, I was gonna say let's do the um, let's do the thirty-second. I'm joking. Reading. I'm joking, man. I'm giving you guff. It's fine. It's fine. Um, so I really got into comic books basically through the death of Superman because I saw the death of Superman graphic novel in a gas station in Erie, Kansas once, and I thought the artwork was fantastic. And through the back of the book, I thought that. It was astounding because I didn't realize that all these other characters were in Superman's universe. It was the first time I had ever learned about a shared comic book continuity. And that really led me into picking up books like Green Lantern and Iron Man and and Batman and all kinds of things like that. Um, And so that's really what got me into comic books. Um, What got me into creating comic books was, you know, I think the, the thing that everybody else comes to if that is interested in being creative it's you eventually read enough comic books and you get to a certain point where you're like oh i can do that i i think i can do that i think i've read enough of these i think i've absorbed enough of these so i'm gonna try one of my own and um my initial attempts were a lot of um, anthology entries and stuff like that like um, atomic man which is one that is going to be uh that which is available on my kickstarter is like a little bonus Mm -hmm. Um, and then led to Jupiter Jet and then Science, the Elements of Dark Energy, and then now to, to Super Best Friend, you know? So it's it's one of these like rinse, repeat, and uh, repetition. Mm-hmm. And so um, I, uh, real quick, so I wonder, this is just a kind of a question I had. Was there a reason that like, were you already, before you got that Death of Superman, were you already um, aware, were you already like kind of aware of, you know, Superman and kind of comic books and other characters and things? Or was that like your legit first like first thing first exposure uh well i think it's kind of hard in the modern world for anybody to not be Mm -hmm, exposed to superman even back then because of superman the movie or Mm -hmm. batman the movie or even teenage mutant ninja turtles Mm -hmm. um it was definitely the first comic book i ever read um you know and it's also a thing like when you think about kids growing up nowadays we're always reading storybooks with pictures and words and even word balloons. So mm-hmm. you're kind of reading comic books from birth now when you think about children's books and stuff like that. But The Death of Superman was my first exposure to a modern comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess, was, do you think that um, maybe 
this is my conjecture. Uh, maybe you've said this somewhere else. I don't know. But is do you think maybe there's a reason? Like, do you think your connection to Superman like could be like you know that you kind of felt? I don't know. Was there any like kinship sort of in the fact that you know you were from Kansas, he's from Kansas? Um, was there any? Did you like recognize that at all at that age, or was that like not above your? Were you like not thinking about that at all? I don't think that was anywhere even close okay, in my head cool. as, as like a five year old. That's um, true. Yeah, you know, um, I don't really, you know. Um, you don't really realize that type of stuff until, you know, you become more cultured and you become mm -hmm. more like that. That's one of those things I think you think about when you're maybe in your teenager phase mm -hmm. or even college phase, you know, where all of us like to think that we're so terminally unique and that we're, so, we're these avant-garde artists and you're like, Hey, Superman's from Kansas. So am I, yeah. hello, you know? Um, but no, as a kid, um, um, it was funny. Like I didn't even find out Superman's origin for quite a while. Um, the thing that I connected to, it was, it wasn't the Kansas thing. It was more the idea of like, I like that this guy with all the power did positive things, help people. I loved the colors of his costume. You know, they, 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 the costume is so classic. And then very quickly, I identified with the idea that he was a farm boy. And so was I, like mm -hmm. we both grew up on, on rural farms. Well, just, this is just more for my curiosity than anything else. Mm -hmm. Like what kind of farming were you doing? Cause like I said, I'm from. Oklahoma so like I'm not I'm not a farmer like from my, my family's not but like you know I gr live around it like my my great uncle he like still he's 92 and still like has cat works cattle and stuff like that like what kind of stuff were you doing was your family doing um we did a little bit of everything um we grew wheat we grew milo and fescue and um my my father farmed with my grandfather mm -hmm. um and they did cattle and goats and chickens. So like kind of like a little bit of everything. Yeah. That's cool. No, like I said, that was just something that I was always curious. I was like, well, I wonder what he did. Cause like, you know, there are people because, you know, Kansas kind of like, I feel like is more crop oriented than some other places I, in general. I don't know. Cause mm -hmm. when I think of Kansas, I think of like, you know, big fields and like, like that, and like Nebraska thing, like big, like, you know, like you said, wheat. Um, I don't know if barley grows there, but like that kind of stuff, like, soybeans those type things but um that's just like i said that doesn't really have anything to do with anything but so was um for writing was writing comics or was writing tv like because i because you do that now um was what was the first point where you realized or was it movies that you realized that like writing was a thing was something that was an option that someone made that thing that you're watching or reading it really wasn't until high school that I came into that idea. Actually, it was, it actually happened with um, the movie gladiator. I can remember seeing that movie in theaters. And when I saw a screenplay by John Logan, it really dawned to me. I was like, Oh, people get paid to write these things that happens. Um, and TV writing was always the goal. And I just happened to fall into comic books on the way because, you know, I had a love of comic books and um, as anybody that, you know, is getting into the, television industry knows and even the comic book industry it's very difficult it takes a long time um, unless you're very very lucky and um you know sometimes you just want to make a thing you want to make art you want to you want to release something and so um weirdly comic books can be slightly faster than television mm -hmm. yeah i mean i have no doubt because like i feel like and i know not to diminish comic art in any way whatsoever because that in itself is its own thing but like in a way there's I feel like there's there's less people to go through, I guess, is the big thing. You know, there's just there's the artist and maybe there's a colorist. But, you know, you got one person, whereas with TV, you know, you might have to go through 
um, you know, a cinematographer, a director of photography, or, you know, then the director and all these different people that it has to go through and then be edited and all these different, you know, all this stuff. But with comics, it's a very small team. And I feel like that kind of does help to streamline the process, make it a little bit easier. Um, so I, but on that note, like, what do you think, um, makes a, do you think there's a difference between what makes a story for comics versus what makes a story for TV or film? Yes. I mean, that's, I think that's true across any medium. Um, and I think the writer that doesn't realize that is making a huge mistake. Um, it's the argument that I hear all the time where I hear comic book fans will say, well, they should just do a shot for shot adaptation of the comic book. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to actually say some of those word balloons out loud, it would sound ridiculous. <sighs> it sounds fine. There's something that a lot of writers will talk about where it's, there is a voice that sounds fine when you read it. And there's a voice that sounds fine when you hear it. And there is a difference. Um, comic books are also the idea of like, you got to think about the, the, you know, comic books are set up about tricking your brain that motion is happening either between panels or turning the page and come, uh, excuse me, television and movies are very much of what are those person's eyes slash souls saying to you? And the whole experience with music and stuff like that. But a lot of it, I find, is very much like it's the eyes. It's like, what is this human saying to you in terms of like the visual medium, you know, because we recognize other humans. But comic books is all about, um, it's the art. It's it, it, Comic books is all of the art. So they're very, very different. And you have to write them differently. It's the thing I always said for a long, long time where um, very few comic book writers, I feel, are able to pull off the 22 page comic book where characters just talk Mm -hmm. where it's two people just sitting and talking because that's a film. That's a play. Um, You know, where we want to see people having a conversation, think about Kevin Smith, you know, Mm -hmm. he's a genius at that in films. And we love hearing that because we love hearing these actors say these amazing lines, take a Kevin Smith movie, put it on a comic book page. And it's probably one of the most boring things you're ever going to read. Mm-hmm. Um, because you don't, you don't want to read that again. It's, it's with comic books. It's like comic books. I feel weirdly, unless you have a very specific comic. And again, some comic books get past this. Um, uh, Sin City gets past this a little bit. Sex Criminals gets past this a little bit, you know, because the, the mm-hmm. settings or the tones are so unique that it works as a comic book, but otherwise comic books got to have a little bit more razzle dazzle. Comic books have to lean a little bit. And I, and I mean this in no insult, a little bit soap opera because that's how you grab people in singular images. Whereas a soap opera, you know, on televisions, you know, we make fun of those. We think they're, mm-hmm. most, most people think they're ridiculous. That's true. I guess I never, I never really thought about it in that way in that, you know, comics do have to kind of be overdramatic because we, you know, there aren't the same, we can't do the same things like, capture those same things because we don't have a real person there doing it obviously um there's only so much that an artist can capture in um like you know through art because like one of the, one of the things that i read heard recently on a podcast or i don't know if it was on a podcast or where i heard it but they were talking about you know some comic book writers they'll put the um they'll make a panel be just a character's mouth and when they have to say a like a line that has a, a big moment and but they said, no, what you really want to do is you want to show the character's eyes. And I feel like that kind of points a little bit in a way to what you're talking about, sort of in that, 
you know, you well, you want to do what you can do to convey something the best. And so to be, to bounce off of that, I will say that when I'm writing a comic book script, dialogue is the last thing I write mm-hmm. because it's more important to come up with the panels and what's happening in the panels. What is the action that we are showing our reader? Whereas sometimes um, when I'm writing uh, a television script, I will write the dialogue first and like just have the characters talk. And then I will cut as much of the dialogue as much as possible to say like, okay, what is the most important dialogue that we need to hear in the scene? But like, if I write the dialogue, I can suddenly be like, oh, okay, this is how these characters would talk about this thing. I kind of know what needs to happen here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I kind of just, I had a question that I lost with Trey I went on, I think I bounced off that pretty good. And so I'll try, I'll try to piece it back together. Um, and so I, from what the little bit that I've heard of people who write both um, comics and TV, there's, um, you know, other than different than what you just said, as far as the differences in between the two is that, you know, comics, you have to be, um, I, 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 I don't remember, one of them you have to be more specific than the other one in the way that you um, like describe a shot or a panel or something. Um, and so I guess how detailed are you being in uh, TV versus in comics, especially when you consider um, as far as like shots and panels go, considering that um, I guess, like how much do you want to give an artist in terms of their freedom to kind of interpret or bring their own little twist to something? Uh, it really depends on the artist um, because it depends. Are you working with somebody who this is their first comic book ever? Well, you better be pretty descriptive in your comic book script, right? Um, if you are working with Mitch Garrett's multiple Eisner award nominated, amazing artist, you could probably just write the man talks and Mitch would nail it yeah. every time. Mm-hmm. Um, if you go look at some of Tom King's scripts, that's exactly what he writes. He just says <laughs> Batman stands and Mitch knocks it out of the park because Mitch has been working for like 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, luckily, like with some of my books, um, I get as specific as I think I need to be. Um, and then there are certain shots that um, I have a very specific vision on. So I'm like, I want this drawn exactly like this. And there are other shots where I'm like, well, draw whatever you want. As long as this is happening in the panel, I don't care what angle it is. I don't care how many characters. I don't, you know, like, that's part of the idea of, of um, comic books is that you can lean on the artist uh, a little bit more. What you were saying earlier um, with screenplays, you have to be specific because you have to be specific for production budget because a lot of other people are going to read that script. The network executive is going to read that script. The casting director is going to read that script. The associate director is going to read that script. Everybody up and down the line has to know, okay, what costumes do I need? How much is this going to cost? How many extras do we need in the shot? Is it night and day? Is it in a restaurant? How many lights are we going to need for this thing? It's a list of, mm-hmm. of a million pieces. So you have to be, you know, when you're talking about a restaurant and a script, you have to say, and a screenplay, excuse me, is it crowded? Is it empty? Is it night? Is it day? Is there food on the table? Is there not a food on the table? Are they mm-hmm. wearing fancy clothes? Are they wearing plain clothes? Are they naked? Whereas um, in a comic book script, you, I generally don't say what the characters are wearing unless they change costumes for a story reason. Because I'm just like, you know what? The artist has got it. It's kind of like the Flintstones. They're always wearing the same thing. Yeah. You know? 
Um, and, you know, unless it's very specific or very purposeful for the shot, it doesn't matter how many people are in the shot. You know, mm -hmm. again, that's where you can lean on the comic book artist a little bit more. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. And so I guess that kind of leads me to one of the other questions that I had was because um, it's something that I know that I think I, I, I might have actually heard it on your podcast. Um, but I, I heard it somewhere where it's like basically is kind of what you were just talking about in the in a comic script the um a scene in a diner essentially costs the same amount of money as a scene that takes place on the enterprise um you know in a space battle that takes place in you know with the death star you know those things cost because it's it's a page rate you know you don't have to pay for effects and all these different things um i might be butchering that in but, terms um, of a comic book yes it's yeah. the exact same price yeah yeah exactly and so uh -huh. i guess is there a i know you mentioned things like times that a comic does those does other things well like where it does you know some conversations well like you mentioned sin city sex criminals um but are there anything what are the what are some things that you think that a comic can do because you i know you've you've mentioned before and other things about things that comics should lean into kind of what makes them good so are there any examples of comics that um you think really um do that well or do an example of something that you think a a comic does like a specific scene maybe or something that that couldn't be done as well in something else i don't really have a specific scene off the top of my head but i will say that comics are better at being bombastic and comics are better at surprises mm -hmm. um movies especially with audiences being so intelligent with the internet nowadays and seeing so much content um movie audiences can predict jump scares now in a comic book with the page flip a jump scare is hidden you can't see it coming no matter what you think is going you know like you can you might be able to predict it but you can't see the next page yeah whereas in a movie you're going to hear a little bit of the score they're going to hold in the shot a little bit the character is going to walk a little slow we kind of know a jump scare mm. is coming yeah. Um, I also think comic books, because they are a visual meeting, again, like should be more bombastic. It should be. Um, this was a thing. I It happened a couple of five or six years ago. I remember when I was reading a bunch of Marvel and reading a bunch of DC. And I can remember there were a couple of months where and this was the mainstream, the big two. And I remembered every comic book I read didn't have a splash page. And it kind of frustrated me because mm -hmm. the splash page letting the artist really, you know, slap you across the face with the story is comic books, most powerful weapon. And it surprised me that not a single one out of probably a hundred comic books had a splash page. It was six, seven, eight panel pages over mm -hmm. and over and over and over again. And to me, I was like, Oh, this is television. Because again, television, I think, really is is in a golden age of writing right now. And it's awesome. Mm -hmm. There is awesome television. That was television bleeding into uh, comic books at that time. And it still is a little bit. Um, but I think comic books would do well to remember the excitement and the fact that the artist is your co-pilot. Mm -hmm. And sometimes maybe you should let your artist pace the book a little bit more. Mm 
Mm. Um, because I think it will deliver a better comic book. It's mm. the same thing in a television show. It would be, it would be like telling a television editor how to edit the episode. You don't. You let the editor do it because he mm-hmm. can handle the pacing. Yeah. Now you 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 write he or she can handle the pacing. You know he you can write it to a certain point, but the editor is gonna be the person that's gonna suggest the length of shots, mm-hmm. and it's because they're an expert at it. They're really good at it, and a comic book artist knows the pacing, knows how to like lay it down on the page and make it work. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, so I'm always in all of my scripts, I'm usually like, hey, if you have a better idea, go for it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the same way that I have or that most people that I've talked to kind of been is it it's that unless unless there's like some very specific shot Mm -hmm. they want for a certain reason, you know, there may be some narrative reason they need that needs to have come from this angle. So that way, at the end of the book, we can do the same thing from the opposite angle. And it, you know, has that some meaning or something. Um, But uh, two things that you just you were just talking about that. I that I thought of was well first while you were talking about how um you know you didn't see any splash page splash pages that's something that I've noticed within my own writing is that like I don't do a lot of splash pages and so and the last the book I'm working on now like I made it a point that I wanted to include a lot of splash or a splash page at least and I don't know if it's technically a splash page because it's like cut up into four panels but it's like one consecutive whatever I don't know how you describe that but anyway but then I was as you right before you said it, I was thinking that's the influence of TV is that most of my comics are very talk conversation based. Um, so I, I was, yeah, I was, I was on the same page, but then also not to toot my own horn or anything, but, and, but then I do think that, like you said, you gotta that, toot your own horn, man, nobody else will. That's true. Uh, if yeah, you won't celebrate true. yourself, nobody else to go into my friend. So exactly. So, so toot that horn. Exactly. And then the other thing that you were talking about was um, with the fact that audiences know jump scares. I feel like that's part of why we're getting a lot of different horror movies like um, The Lighthouse and like Midsummer and things that I feel like are doing things a little bit differently than maybe old school or than like, you know, slasher type movies where there were more typical or typical horror movies. I feel like that's why we're getting more experimental things now. Um, and I'm not a horror expert or anything, so that could be wrong. And I've only seen like, I've only seen, you know, I haven't seen that many, you know, horror movies, new horror movies. But there's a few that I think that have, you know, maybe uh, uh, penetrated the social whatever more that I think might be doing might be doing that differently. Um, so, um, Sorry, I just I'm just going to scroll through my list of questions and see if I find anything that hits me. Um, okay. OK, one question. And then I want to take a break because I want to kind of move into um, talk about more about Super Best Friend. Um, you spent this is again, this is another question just for me because I haven't found anyone who knows what I'm talking about yet. Um, so you were overseas um, in Iraq. Um, I grew up on a military base in Japan. Um, my dad wasn't in the military. He was a teacher for the Department of Defense. But um, oh, interesting. Over there, did you have they? They might not have been doing this when you um, were over there because they kind of started it. They had it going on, then they kind of started stopped it. Did the exchange have comic books that were like Marvel comics that were licensed for the exchange? I don't re- remember seeing any comic books. Well, never mind. in the exchange. I have so, like. Uh, if you, did you have comic? Did you, did you have comic at your PX? You mean? Um, we had like a small spinner rack, but no, they always had like by the checkouts. They always had like oh, stacks. No, of these free books they didn't. That were um one of the. First, I had to get sent first. all my comic books. 
Yeah, well, that, I mean, like I said, it, mine was on an actual like a like it was a base with like families and you know stuff like that. So I don't know, maybe that was because you were just stationed like over like just in Iraq, correct? Or you ever yes. stationed like on a yeah? So I don't know, maybe that was a little bit different. Like I said, we only had one rack, but no, there was these comics that like that was the first place I like heard of like Silver Surfer and Ghost Riders because it was this book and I had like three little short stories and then each one's featured like a service member doing something and then it always had a bunch of ads for the PX in it. And then I have a whole bunch. They started doing doing a more when the MCU started because like they were all like Marvel themed. Like one was Hawkeye coming into an airport and he was helping a fighting the Serpent Society with like some soldiers who were just coming back from. That England. sounds interesting. Yeah, I, I like I said, I'm just trying to see if anyone who would know what that is. And I don't have a lot of like I don't know a lot of people who are like military and also comics who have that similar background. So I'm just trying to find see if I can find someone. So I'm not crazy because I have like five. And you haven't been able to discover it anywhere on Google. I mean, I have, but like no like images. It's just like uh, on a Marvel wiki. It's just like this is a thing that exists, but I can't like find them. I guess I mean, like, I guess I can find proof. I just want to talk to another person. So I'm like, you saw that too, right? Um, anyway, so um, we will. Uh, well, like I said, we'll take a quick break. I want to talk a little bit more about Super Best Friend and Kickstarter, things like that uh, when we come back. So uh, we'll take a quick break for that. And we're back. Um, so like I said, I want to talk about, um, super best friends. So sir, like you talked about, mentioned earlier, like, uh, death of Superman was your first comic. And, um, and, you know, I know, I don't know if it's maybe your favorite hero superhero, but you know, definitely up there is Superman. And so this is kind of your Superman story. And yes. I know from other interviews, I think you might've actually put this pitch this to DC at some point. And they clearly didn't didn't bite. But um, so I guess what's if you could give a um, 10 word summary of Super Best Friend. Does it have to be specifically 10 words? As, as short as you can get it. I don't know. I just Dear like to Lord. give I just like to give um, I can give a sentence, but I, I don't know. If I one sentence. Ten, there you go. One sentence. Specifically there you go. 10 words. There you go. Um, <laughs> um, it's uh, what if the live streamer sidekick of the world's greatest superhero accidentally revealed his best friend's secret identity. There you go. That works. Um, I just, I just like to do the short version because a lot of people who do this stuff, you know, they they're used to giving their little spiel over and over again. Mm -hmm. So I like to try to force them into a little hole. I think that's, yeah, I don't know fun. how many I don't know how many words that was, but it I was, was like ten like ten ten words is a very specific demand. Yeah, I, I I've pitched a lot of places and I've never heard that one. <laughs> <laughs> it was 10 to 15 that's pretty good i think right. I, don't, I didn't count um but so this does come from the perspective of more from superman's sight or from not from superman sorry captain terrific's sidekick um so why tell the story from that perspective why not because if you're a superman fan why not tell you know just straight up his story why tell it from that perspective well, first of all, I just have to make very clear this is not a Superman story. Yes, that's um, true. This is a story about a Superman archetype. Yes, yeah. And he has very different powers from Superman. Mm -hmm. um, true. You know, um, but, you know, you will see the inspirations. Um, mm -hmm. Just like somebody would see Homelander has the um, similar tendencies to Superman as well. Um, yeah. the, the advantage to telling the perspective from Maddie Moore, my sidekick, um, to the super analog is that 
you make it a story that fits into the reader's POV because nobody reading comic books has superpowers, but we all wish we did. And we all are fans of superheroes, just like my main character. And as part of the stipulation of the, um, of the book that I'm trying to get across, which is um, if superheroes existed in our modern world with YouTube and TikTok and Twitch, there would be superhero fan channels. There would be like the Taylor Swift of superheroes Twitch channel. There would be, you know, the the Batman TikTok uh, that of a person that like is obsessed, just like there are for football teams and MMA fighters and stuff like that. But this is for superheroes. So the unique thing about it is, is that um, by putting it from the sidekick's view, we all get to see it from our view because Maddie Moore, uh, my self-titled super best friend is basically a younger more superhero obsessed version of me that's i mean i think that's completely valid um so i guess is that kind of the same thing that you think that um talking about actually dc here is that the same thing that you think jimmy olsen adds to the superman family to the superman mythos or is there anything else that is there something that jimmy olsen adds besides just a human, because I mean, I think you could argue that Lois Lane also might be just bring, bring that human factor over. So, I mean, is there anything that you think Jimmy Olsen um, brings over brings to Superman um, other than what you just mentioned? Jimmy Olsen, um, what he brings to Superman is the youth and the idea of Clark Kent's youth, and that's what like that's a brilliant thing about all the Superman family, what they really do. Lois is the example of humanity that Superman is the most inspired by. Um, Perry White is the example that Superman wants to become. Like he wants to be the respected journalist that is able to be fair and bipartisan and, and, and a respected journalist. And Jimmy is sort of the representation of his youth from Smallville of like, oh, having fun. But like, just like Superman, Jimmy also took the chance. And then Lex Luthor, of course, you know, you want to take that even further is the dark representation of that. He's he's Superman. If Superman didn't care, mm -hmm. you know, um, so that's what I think. Jimmy, Jimmy was always meant to be Superman's best friend. The, the, the one when times were tough, Superman could go to Jimmy and be like, man, it was a hard day today. Bizarro just really ticked me off and jimmy be like yeah i know man and perry white maybe get him get him coffee uh seven yeah. times it was annoying um so they could be pal that's why he's called superman's uh pal mm -hmm. jimmy olsen that's true and i mean i i think there's a lot of um and i feel like you I, I feel like in a way you're leaning into that those same types of similar types of stories to um kind of the really weird silver age jimmy olsen stories where you know he what was he like he was like turtle boy i think or something like that or you know he's been all these weird had different weird powers through through all the years you know all those one-off stories like superman's pal jimmy olsen um like i feel like you're kind of i don't know maybe you're not kind of it seemed like you were kind of going a little bit that direction because maddie moore gets some sort of something happens to him at the end of the first issue um that was at least the vibe i got i don't know if that's what you that was intentional or not but that is intentional it's okay. definitely cool. in, in, inspired by a lot of the silver age shenanigans where um where i kind of think that um stuff that i love in comic books is 
fun and zaniness and the insanity mm-hmm. of comic books. There's things that happen in comic books that don't happen in other mediums um, that are very soap opera or melodramatic. And um, that's the stuff I love about comic books. And that is definitely a lot of that in, um, I do call it a, an adventure with silver age energy. No, and it definitely is. And I feel like, um, I guess, were there any things that you, um, obviously, you know, you've definitely, I've, I, you've read, you know, plenty of Superman books through the years. Was there anything that you um, specifically looked at, um, not just Superman, but Silver Age books in general that you looked at to uh, books or creators when you looked at when you were trying to create um, Super Best Friend to kind of capture that energy? Um, I, to be honest with you, one place that I looked a lot at, and I didn't really look at a specific run. I went more for his original run, his original Stan Lee and uh, 70s run. I actually looked a lot at Daredevil in the Silver Age and Daredevil in the beginning because of the relationship between Matt and Foggy Nelson. Because Foggy Nelson is, you know, Matt Murdock's best friend. And he's not a superhero. Mm -hmm. And... Matt still respects him quite a bit, actually. And he's still in the comic to this day. Like he's an important, he is almost the Alfred of Daredevil. If you don't have Foggy Nelson, it doesn't feel like a Daredevil comic mm-hmm. book. Um, and so I looked a lot at that relationship because, you know, um, when you're, I always feel like when you're looking for inspiration, when you work on your project, you can't just pick one source because then all you're going to do, you're just going to make a straight up copy. Mm-hmm. And I, and I didn't want that to happen by only looking at Superman and Jimmy Olsen. I wanted to be inspired by Superman and Jimmy Olsen. And, you know, they always say that um, uh, uh, great artists steal. You know, they don't copy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and that's something that you've, or that just brings to mind something that you've, um, you, you mentioned that I've, I, or that I've mentioned, I, I saw somewhere or you, you, I don't remember where I hear these things. Every, I hear so much stuff from everywhere that I don't know who, 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 if I came up with it, someone else came up with it, but that if you want to, cause it's kind of how I got into comics was, um, or I started, got into making comics was if you want to, um, make comics, like if you want to write a Superman story, just make your, just, you know, take all the, the logo and the names and all that stuff off and just, make your own character and, you know, do the same thing for your Captain America because your ex, whatever you want to do mm-hmm. and make your own version that. Cause that's how I started in comics. My first comic I ever wrote was a, basically a Superman story. It was, I wrote it after Batman v Superman. And it was about like, kind of was the goal is to be like, no, we still need hope. And like, we still need hopeful heroes and stuff, but that's kind of what I did is I just was like, I want to remake. I just want to write a Superman story. Cause I just watched this movie, but I can't do Superman. So I'm just going to make my own. And so I feel like that's a really good piece of advice. And that's kind of what basically what you did here is just was like, this is what I want to do. Obviously I can't use that. And I'm not trying to copy. You want to bring your own thing to it. But like you said, you, you want to, um, you don't want to straight up copy, but you do want to um, definitely, you know, have your, you know, be nodding to that. Um, my last question about super best friend. Um, just, I want to know why, like halfway through the book, there's you stops and there's a just like a basically it's the end of an issue right and Mm so was there a reason for that or is that just like the idea that there's two issues in one um what was the what why why why'd you do that so it is the idea that there are two issues in one but also if you go back and read silver age comics if you were to buy like a 60s or 70s issue of uh superman's pal jimmy olsen you get three stories in the book and the stories stop or they have chapters. 
Um, and I specific, I really, really wanted to do that with this one because originally I was going to just do it as a graphic novel. And even in the graphic novel, I was like every end because I end in every, you know, if everybody's out there is not familiar with your best friend, I do the beginning and endings like the classic silver age tales where there's a, there's a splash page that kind of like, hello, readers, blah, 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 mm -hmm. check this out. And then the end of it is like, oh, you check out the next Avenger, blah, blah, blah. Um, and it's the idea to like go back to that tone because I think that tone is fun and I love that idea. So is the idea of that even though it's one story and all, all six issues when we eventually get to the sixth issue, um, they all are one story, but every one of them is going to have like a chapter break. Every one of them is going to have a like, oh, and then here we go, uh, dear readers, blah, blah, blah. What's happening next? Um, because again, that's a fun thing of the medium and um, you know, have fun in your medium is what I say and go crazy with it. I, I assume by six issues, you mean like three floppies, but six stories. Yes, I miss. Yeah, it's six yeah. stories okay, and, and like, three floppies. I was yeah. like, is this one of three? Did I misread? I don't know. What, what did I do wrong? Um, but so now I just want to ask uh, uh, what so what exactly goes into, um, you know, you've worked with a lot of different um, artists and um, letters and things like that um, in your different books. So what goes into um, choosing um finding someone who is like the right fit for a story well first off i think the number one thing is you gotta go after an artist or ask an artist that you're really inspired by because you're writing to them you're writing for them to draw and if you're inspired by them they should be inspired by you, like by what you're giving them because you're just like oh you're you should be constantly thinking like oh man i can't wait to see what they're going to do. Like one of the best things I love about your best friend is George Cambodias, uh, who I've been, who I was a fan of for, for a couple of years before um, I read a great book, um, the secret lives of Miranda Turner for image that he drew. And ever since then, I've been a big fan of his and I'm always excited to be like, okay, I know he's going to kill this um, panel of Maddie or this panel of captain terrific. I always know he's going to like do it super awesome. So I think, um, Look for somebody that inspires you, somebody that you're like, man, I am excited to see what they do with this page because that's going to excite you. And then I always think about tone. George is great. He has a very um, fun, vibrant, some people might say Pixar-ish energy in Super Best Friend. Um, and to me... You know, and this is just me personally, I, I, a better and a stronger writer than me could probably find a, a write an excellent story for George. But for me, I would never write a horror story for George. Mm -hmm. You know, like my brain can't compute that. I guarantee you there's a writer, Brian Michael Bendis, Peter Tomasi, all the, the greats could probably write a horror story for George and have no problems. I'm not that guy. Um, so for me, I always say, like, find the artist that fits the tone of your script. Um, like you probably wouldn't go to Rob Liefeld and say, Hey, you want to draw an all ages comic book for scholastic? Yeah. Right. Exactly. Doesn't, doesn't match. Right. Probably you know, it, or it's the same, like when you're thinking about a movie, like, you know, if you're think, think about your, um, you're shooting a Batman movie. Right. And you're going to say, okay, the main color theme of this movie is going to be bright yellow and blue skies. Mm -hmm. Doesn't feel like a Batman movie. Does it doesn't fit the tone. Exactly. Um, so exactly. think about that with artists as well. Like, mm -hmm. Um, you know, that's where I would, you know, like, and I only say this because, you know, I, I'm a big fan of his, like Tony Daniel has been killing it for years on, um, 
Batman. And he's doing that book Nocturna, which is literally about night uh, uh, for Scott Snyder. Um, and in my head, you know, I wouldn't quite put Tony on Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. No, I'm Tony. I he's a lovely artist. He's an amazing artist, and I've met him a couple of times. He's freaking fantastic. I'm certain he could draw the hell out of a Spider-Man book. But if I'm a Marvel editor or I'm a, or a Marvel writer for Spider-Man, I'd be like, yeah, let's let's maybe not Tony Daniel, maybe mm-hmm. Patrick Gleason, who I've seen yeah. do stuff like that with Superman. Mm-hmm. Like you know, so that's what I say. Like think about you are the publisher of your own book before anybody else. So put yourself in the publisher role or put yourself in the comic book reader role and think about if you saw that artist with your story on the stands, would you pick it up or would your brain go, eh, doesn't fit. Mm. And if your brain goes, doesn't fit, you should pick a different artist. Now mm. the smart move, the expert move, the pro tip is put a, put that artist in a Google doc and save them for later. You will mm-hmm. find a project for them. Yeah. later. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> I mean, I, yeah, I had that, I have that list too. I have my own little list of like people like, Ooh, I'd love to work with them. Like I can, I want to, you know, I can, I want to write something for them, but um, what is ex- like, is there anything that you look for this far? This, this is just something that is interesting to me more and more as I get more into learning how to letter myself. Is there anything you look for when you look at a letterer? Cause like for this, you have Taylor Esposito who's um, great. Um, is it glyph studios or it's ghost glyph studios ghost glyph studios is, yeah. is taylor's studio yes yeah. I, c- I couldn't remember what it was called but yeah so i mean i i i was aware of him from this and like from i think i first saw his name on red hood and then i heard him you when you interviewed him for um uh something um that's where i kind of heard him more and then you know i've and like i said i've just been getting more into lettering in general so that was really interesting to me so but what do you look for where are you just looking for anything specific when you're looking for a letterer or are you just kind of for that are you more open um letter letterers one are the most undervalued mm-hmm. part sure. of comic books and that's why i always give a major shout out to taylor esposito because he is the secret thunder of our book um i love taylor because taylor has always made my stuff better in terms of letter placements or just ideas. And that's why I love working with Taylor. And that's why I've kept Taylor on all my books. Um, But I think when you're looking for a letterer, it's got to be clear. And lettering is one of those talents. We all know bad lettering. Mm -hmm. We recognize it immediately. And it's the biggest pro tip I would give anybody else. I would say, do not a lot of art, a lot of writers and artists are like, I can letter my own book. Don't do it. Don't do it. Yeah. Letterers are not expensive. Go hire them. Um, Give somebody a living wage and do it um, because they will improve your book immensely. I just think it's, it's all clarity and it's clarity on where in the panel have they put the balloon? How easy is it to read um, the font or, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the message that you're the story that you were trying to put out there. Sorry, I was just looking at the book again. Um, and yeah, no, I, I, that's kind of like what you just said about how that's kind of the general rule of thumb is, you know, we all know bad lettering, but good le- good lettering is almost unnoticeable. And mm-hmm. I, and lately, another way I heard it described by um, another letter, Aditya Bideker, was like, he said, uh, lettering should be able to, like, it should look like the artist did the lettering as well. Like it should look uniform in style. Like it should look like it, blends in with everything else it shouldn't stand out and be its own thing um 
and that was that was another one of my questions was um, what do you think is most worth investing in? I, I would like a letter is probably up there as far mm-hmm. as just something to so especially because it's considering it's so cheap. But um, it's, well, it's and it's it's cheap when you think about it compared to like an artist and a yes. colorist and yeah. all the other things. Like it's the one thing I would not skimp on. Mm. Like I always say, people always ask me, they're like, well, how much does it take to put together a comic book? And I always say more than you think about it, because basically you got to pay living wages to three people that you've never, you know, that, that, that are only going to work on their comic book the entire time. Um, And when you compare, you know, the letterer is usually, you know, like when you're working on your budget for your comic books and some people are, have come to me with their comic budgets and they are like, Oh my God, this is so expensive. My first suggestion is usually always, well, can you publish it black and white for now? Mm-hmm. because yeah. you know maybe it will still work black and white but the thing that it won't work with is no lettering or bad mm-hmm. lettering or mm-hmm. lettering you do yourself in photoshop it will not work it's an automatic yeah. i'm gonna say failure out, out the gate yeah and i mean i also think just in terms of like the i i don't know i don't know if this is the best way to put it but like your return on investment with a letter like mm-hmm investing in a letter it may it makes your look not only look better but it looks so much more professional if you have like a good letterer doing it mm-hmm. it just looks be- like because i did made the same mistake where i tried to letter my own stuff and it no bueno um and so like i've i've, I've been like like i said i'm act- actively trying to improve on my lettering and trying to like you know work on other people's stuff as well so it's 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 a whole other thing but um i so this is it is this is on kickstarter and it's um your sixth kickstarter you you've run several successful campaigns each one you know you it, each one's been successful with the exception of the very first one um that i that i just saw because i was just looking at your kickstarter page um just a little bit ago the, yeah um, that was that the, was because like that was uh before i knew what i was doing and yeah that was more of a just like let's see if this will work and it didn't mm-hmm. yeah um, well i mean we I also like... clearly didn't know our audience at the time so it's yeah. fine <laughs> Yeah, I feel like that's kind of what a lot of people who mm. do, I did the same thing, you know, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I can run a Kickstarter. Everybody I've else never that. failed a it. comic book Kickstarter. That's true. Exactly. I've, I've failed, too. So, you know, it's, mm. it is it's, it is what it is. But and I, I feel like, you know, a big part of that is learning from each one. So, I mean, do you have any, um, I guess, any tips or um, in running those six? This is your sixth one. I write. Is that correct? Uh, well, technically, think... it's my technically is my seven because I also did an Indiegogo campaign, but it's that's fine. Okay, um, it's all good. Yeah, it, well, it, hey, we're not keeping score here. It's all exactly. good, man. But so I, I mean, for I guess for my question, it doesn't really matter. Um, have you found something like a like I said? Because a lot of people want to do Kickstarters, and the Kickstarter is you know up in the air right now with all the mm, there's you know blockchain. I don't know if it's up in the air. It's just it's it's difficult to me because different people are like, I'm never going to use Kickstarter again because they're all blockchain. I'm not going to not going to support NFTs. And I'm like, I get that, but I also need the money, please. Um, so have you found a, a shortcut or a, obviously there's not like a shortcut or like a secret, like this will make your Kickstarter work, but like something that you found that might make it a little bit easier. I don't know what I'm looking for here, but I, is there like something, maybe a way to like, to make your, um, your budget go down or something to for a comic that you found that has been really helpful to then like, Oh, Hey, I can, I can cut back on this or I can save this for later or something. I haven't found any secrets that will cut down a budget. Um, yeah. That's different for every project. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, 
the thing that I would say is there's two things. The biggest mistake I have ever seen is people setting their goal way too high mm-hmm. because Kickstarter is like a casino and a roll of the dice. It's a game. People come to your page and if they see you are 1% funded and you have three days to go, they're not going to give you a dime. Mm-hmm. If they see you are a hundred percent funded and you got 28 days to go, they'll give you all their money because they know it's a pre-order, you know? Mm-hmm. And so it's all a game. Like you have to realize that I see this a lot with first time Kickstarter backers or first time Kickstarter projects. Well, they will go on there and they'll put the goal is a hundred thousand dollars and they've never ran a Kickstarter before. Mm. And you know, most people um, that haven't built up an audience on, you know, podcasts or any other form, you know, have no following are going to Kickstarter and putting up $50,000 as the goal. And for your first Kickstarter, you're asking friends, you're asking families, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're begging uh, people like-minded on the internet, strangers to help you. And the reaction will probably be like, no way in hell, you're not going to mm-hmm. make it. Um, or, or you also get the weird reaction that people will say like, well, what are you going to do with $50,000? So be very reasonable with your goal. And I would say that until you've built up a following, until you've ran several Kickstarters, um, make sure that number is the lowest it can be and still have your project happen. And if that means you got to take some sacrifices and pay for some stuff on yourself, then that's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, the other goal I've, I, I would say is that just make sure your campaign is clear. I've, I've read so many Kickstarter campaigns for comic books, for literally anything, board games and stuff like that. And yeah, I know what a board game is. And yeah, I know what a comic book is, but you need to tell me what is the comic? What is this story? And why are you bringing it to Kickstarter? And I think a lot of projects miss both that. And, you know, and we all do that because we're, we all talk to our friends like sometimes and, and we'll say like, oh yeah, that thing I'm doing. And, you know, the friend will be like, I have no idea what you're talking about because we don't know everything that's going on in each other's lives. And you have to assume that with a Kickstarter as well. You have to assume that everybody, even your grandmother, your mother, your best friend doesn't know all the details of your Kickstarter. So you better explain it to them. Um, And you better treat it's a Stan Lee rule, right? Like Stan Lee had the rule of like everybody's comic book is their first comic book. You need to treat your Kickstarter as everybody's your Kickstarter could be somebody's first Kickstarter and you better you better assume nothing. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. I mean, I really I really like I feel a, a couple things that I thought of was one, like I feel like almost the hardest part for me of a Kickstarter is um, in general is just the publish publicity, you know, marketing side of it. Um but it's specifically like marketing it to my non-comics friends and family. Like mm-hmm. I can, you know, put it on my Twitter and, you know, post it all over my comics, social medias all day long. But when it comes to putting on my personal page, it's like a whole other, like I get so much anxiety and I just, it's so much harder to do that than it is. And I, I guess it's cause you know, I'm, I'm being more vulnerable or whatever, but that's so much more difficult. Um, just making that jump. And I know it's necessary. It's just, it's really hard, but, mm-hmm. um, and then you did mention Stanley and that's something I, I remember, I think I said it on one of the, another interview I did recently was like, you know, for all of the dudes, you know, faults and things he might not have done, you know, above board and everything. 
as far as taking credit and stuff, there's one thing that he was amazing at and that was marketing and PR. And like, I feel like in the age of Kickstarter, like if he'd been coming up now and had that same mentality that he had, it would have like, I feel like we all need to have kind of that same thing that he did where he was just like, look at me, look at all these great things. Look at it, look at it, look at it. You know, and he is very bombastic in that way. And I feel like we can mm-hmm. take a lot of notes from that. But like I said, that isn't really, that's just something I was, I heard on a recent, we were, I was talking with someone else about, but, and, but I guess the big thing was, what you just mentioned about setting a low goal. And that's something that I've seen a lot of other people doing. And it's something that I feel like for the same reasons you just mentioned, I feel like is almost the way to go is to purposefully set a lower goal because if you can reach that goal, it looks better to say, you know, even if you really need 3000, you set your goal for 1000 and then you end up hitting the 1000 pretty quick. And then people are going to keep going and mm-hmm. eventually you're at 200, 300% funded. And then people are going to continue to back you. And I feel like that's almost better than it's the phrase. People love to back a winning horse. Exactly. And it's, it's like, true. It's yeah. 100% true. And that's kind of what I'm, what I'm doing planning for the next, you know, next time I try another Kickstarter is like, I'm just going to, I'm going to lowball it knowing that if I don't make it, I'm going to have to fork over some money, but having looked at, like I, I've said this several times, I'm a big numbers person. I don't know why I'm just a nerd, but I like to look at data and things. And so I like to look at the numbers on Kickstarter and different people's Kickstarters and compare them and average them and all these different, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm weird. I don't know. Um, it doesn't really help me, but I just, I have a notebook full of just numbers, but um, <laughs> I really do. It's like for the last Kickstarter I ran, I was like, I looked at the number of pages and the amount of the goal per page. And then, so the average goal was, the, it was, it's ridiculous. It didn't help me because I've still failed, but it felt like I knew what I was doing. My hey, point, every, you're, you're already ahead of the crowd because you're willing to figure out the reason mm-hmm. why most people won't even figure out the why. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, I just, I just really was looking at it and I feel like that's kind of the way to go is just to, you know, have, you know, lowball it and back yourself almost. Cause knowing that, Hey, I know I can get this thousand dollars and I have faith that if I get that, I can push that into more. Um, so yeah. Um, let me see if there's anything else. Um, Oh, I guess one other question that I have, um, it's not related to any of this, but, um, as far as something you've been doing recently is, um, you have your, I don't know if you consider it your brand. I don't know how you, how you think of it, but as far as geek history lesson, um, within the past probably month or so, you've um, expanded that a lot. From um, you've put out the Instagram, you've started the blog, you've um, started or you've announced that like you're changing some things up into the going ahead as far as reviews and things um, with the Patreon. And um, I think you said you did something with video or YouTube you're going to start doing more of. Was or did I mishear that? Uh, we haven't confirmed that. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, maybe I, I don't know. I, maybe I just, could it's all miss, good. I think I just heard video and I was like, Oh, they're doing YouTube again. Um, anyway. Um, so, but what goes into, um, what kind of considerations go into something like that for someone who, for like you, you've, you've worked on geek history lesson. You just put out episode 400. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's, um, Seven years, eight years, eight five years. years. Yeah. Eight. Okay. Eight I was years. trying to do the math. I was like 400 mm-hmm. divided by 52 is something. Yeah. So eight years now. Um, and so you just slowly been building it up and now you kind of, I feel, I feels like at least made several jumps at once, you know, with all these things. And obviously these weren't things that you just did on a whim, 
but what kind of considerations go into expanding something that you've been working on slowly for um, like the past eight years? Um, well, it's all, it's all bandwidth and it's all, do you have the time to do it? And then it's, will it improve? Because if, if, if what you're doing doesn't help improve, you know, the original product, the original idea or the original podcast, then, you know, there's no point in doing it. But also if it's going to add so much work to you that it's going to stress you out and not make it possible if you do anything, then you probably shouldn't do it. Um, you know, like it's, I could get very woo woo and, and be like, well, this is part of the vision we want for GHL and this is the thing, you know? Um, but that's kind of what it is. You know, like we have an idea of like where we want to take GHL, where we want to grow the listenerships, our podcast. And, um, and so we've made some moves to see if it works and we're going to do it for a while and see if it works. And if it doesn't, it, it won't. And, uh, uh, the great thing is that I have a great co-partner and my co-host Ashley Victoria Robinson. So, uh, you know, she's the one that's like doing a lot of the, like, you know, helping out and, and setting up, you know, the Instagram and the blog and the stuff like that. Um, you know, so that's another helpful tip is make sure you find a partner that mm. can really help with that type of stuff. Yeah. I mean, that's that right now. That's kind of the thing is I've been trying to find is I'm like, I just need someone to both for like podcast and just like trying to build up my own little small indie press. And like, it's just like, I just need someone, I need someone else who can, you know, who I can work with. And like currently like my girlfriend's kind of helped me out as far as like business things. And if nothing else, she's a soundboard, which is a really big deal. But honestly, if I can be completely honest, I feel like what you just said is kind of what I need to hear at the moment which was just do what you can do now, which you can handle and don't, I, I, maybe I misconstrued, but I feel like what I heard at least was don't push yourself past what you can handle at the moment. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, cause I kind of get caught up in the whole, um, and I feel like I'm not the only person who gets caught up in like, you know, I have to have a Twitter and I have to have my Instagram and I have to have this and I have to have all these things going and I have to do all this stuff. And then like I get too caught up and then all of them are, you know, just a quarter of what they could be. Whereas if I was to, you know, focus on, you know, just focus on a Twitter or focus on Instagram and just do that thing all the time and really focus on building that. I feel like that would be, you know, that's kind of what I need to be doing. And like I said, maybe that's a moment of self-reflection for me and for no one else, but I don't know. Like I said, I guess that's just what I needed to hear at the moment. Um, so uh, I appreciate that. Um, and so kind of to, um, as we kind of wind down here, um, um, I don't know how to phrase this question, but um, usually we do a, or sometimes we do a book club. I thought I was going to be a lot busier than I am. Um, so I didn't, I don't do them all the time. It just kind of depends on my schedule. And so I didn't because I was like, hey, I got work and I have to record like two or three episodes next week. And then turns out I've had the last, I have today and then the next two days all snowed out of school. So I'm like, I get to sit home. So I would have had time anyway. So, um, um, is there a, I, I have two more questions. Is there a comic book that you think, um, really that you feel like captures, um, is there a certain part of your life, whether that's, um, you know, your childhood or, um, your early adult life or, being a teen or something that you think um, you can really see yourself in a comic book that you can really see yourself in or see us that you really identify with. Did I not uh, word that that good? I, I, I'm sorry. I don't quite understand the question. Okay. No, um, I, I don't either really. That's the problem. 
I had this written down and then I was like, I need to figure out how to word it better. Mm-hmm. Like, so if you could, I guess, is there a comic book that you feel like just anything that you feel like you identify with or that you can really see yourself in superhero or not? Um, I mean, in terms of like prose, um, I really identify a lot with the book field of dreams or not field of dreams, but shoeless Joe, the book, not the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one that I really identify. And then I've always identified, uh, of course with Superman because Superman is the person that taught me morality. Oh, sorry. I didn't know that was, a, I didn't know field of dreams was a book. So uh, yes. Shoeless Joe. Enough. Yep. Huh. There it is. WP can tell. Anyway. Nice. Um, yeah, uh, I don't I don't really have an answer right now. I think that kind of from what I've been reading, I'm only about a quarter of the way through it, but I feel like Blankets by Craig S. Thompson. I really I'm really I'm really feeling that it's really kind of it's really hitting me pretty good. Um, I feel like there's something else on my shelf that I've read recently that would really hit me. But um, anyway, last question. Um, I, fe- I try to end it with just a random question to kind of get to know the person or just to just something random. Um, if you could have any fictional item from sci-fi or fantasy or anything like that um, and have it for real and, you know, you could use it. So if it was, you know, a Green Lantern ring, you'd have the willpower to use it. Or if you were, it was Mjolnir, you could, you were worthy. If you could have anything like that, what would it be? Uh, Green Lantern ring is a good choice. I, I, didn't, choice I, didn't even think, I didn't even think about it until you brought it up. Um, the thing that my head went to immediately was a transporter because I really am envious of the ability to go somewhere and instantaneously or go step in this thing instantaneously be somewhere painlessly. Mm. Um, but a green lantern ring, I could fly there and I assume I could fly as fast as a jet. I don't so know. I I'm mean, going to say, I'm going to steal your answer. I'm going to go green lantern ring. Well, there you go. I mean, and if like, I forget what issue it was, which comic it was, it was something it was in like the last five or six years, but like, there's one panel where like Hal Jordan, he almost breaks the speed force or something with the ring. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a pretty cool page. I don't remember what it's from though. I think it's from the new gods event that they did. Cause I think he was like, he's tracing light ray or something. Anyway. Yeah. Green Lantern rings always been my answer. I don't know that in reality I'd have the willpower to actually wield it, but you know, just like I said, this is my ideal world. So, you know, we're going to pretend that I can. Um, sure. Anyway, uh, Jason, that is all I have for you. Um, why don't you let us know where we can find you online? Uh, well, everyone listening, you can find uh, issue two of Super Best Friend at superbestfriendcomic.com. We have a Dan Jurgens variant uh, cover. So if you're a big fan of Death Superman or anything like that, come check it out. Uh, it'll be up there for this month and it'll only be available there. And then you can find me on Twitter at Jawin, J-A-W-I-I-N, where uh, I will be promoting my podcast, Geek History Lesson, on Apple and Spotify uh, every single week. Um, and as always, you can find Foreign Press Comics at F Press Comics on Twitter, Foreign Press Comics on Instagram, ForeignPressComics.com, <sighs> all that stuff. Um, and um, that's that's all I have. So uh, thanks for coming on, Jason. Uh, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah. <laughs>